As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Simply Financial with Certified Financial Planner Christopher Calandra is an innovative, comprehensive, informative, and cutting-edge podcast that discusses financial topics ranging from personal finance, economics, politics, and personal growth. Simply Financial will cover intriguing and thought-provoking questions so that the listener can simply increase their financial IQ. Welcome to episode number eight of the Simply Financial podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Calandra. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. On today's series with Everyday Americans, I am lucky to be joined with Joseph Eddy, or Joe Eddy, uh, who I've known for some 17 years. He is a retired small business owner, an architect, and an entrepreneur who sold his business at the very end of 2015. He's retired and has moved to a different state. So over the last couple of years, he's had a very high level of change and I'm really lucky like I said to have him join me today for this episode so thanks for being here well thank you Chris it's uh, my pleasure so how has all of this change been again you sold your business you retired and you moved from Connecticut to Florida how has all this change been uh, the change has been exciting. It, it's it's that new chapter people talk about, and uh, for for us, uh, for my wife and I, it's just been phenomenal. Um, we've enjoyed the change. Uh, as tiring as it is, it seems like I'm still getting up every day, almost running a business, just moderating the changes. But uh, it's great, and uh, we feel a little bit like we're in paradise. Yeah, I look to you. How it's happened for you and Maureen? It's Inspirational is not the right word, but it is, it's enjoyable to see how you worked so hard for so long and sacrificed so much to get to the point that you spend so much time thinking about and having it be happy and fulfilling. But I wanted to ask you, and we haven't even talked about this uh, off, not camera, but off mic, is you built this business over a long time. I've built my business. I'm self-employed. I'm entrepreneurial. So we share that. But was it weird selling your business, a.k.a. your baby? This is a business that you worked on for a long time. You were associated with the business as the primary architect, so it's something that was probably close to your self-image. Plus, you and Maureen, your wife, worked on it day in and day out. So was it 
weird to sell it and let it go? Uh, not exactly weird, honestly. Uh, when I established the business more than 30 years ago, we were 30 years formally established okay. as a professional services business. When I established the business 30 years ago, I specifically selected a name that would ensure me when I got older and was ready to do something else, it was a marketable name and not directly attached to me as a personality in the sense that most professional service firms are. It was more marketable to have a more generic term and name. So even when I established the business, I had in the front of my mind the idea that life changes and I would be ready to make that change and although it kind of was my baby, it's fun to turn the page. It's fun to do something different. And uh, this was always part of my plan. So you had the foresight some 30 years ago when naming your business not to have it be the Joe Eddy firm or the Eddy and Associates firm. So that seems very wise. And I could see somebody in their late 40s, 50s, or 60s having that awareness but you are much younger than that so where did where did that come from did you learn that in school or class did you get some advice from a mentor or are you just that smart (laughs) i could be i'm just that stupid but uh no i i never um no one ever mentioned it but i do remember i worked for some very large firms and i remembered how problematic it was in the late 70s and early 80s, when firms, professional firms, had established themselves and were um, at the edge of exploding in size, and the senior partnership wanting to get out had anchored itself with its own names. Okay. And it was a true anchor. Because now you would go to a meeting as a senior architect or lead project, and you couldn't present the weight of the firm because the weight of the firm was held down by, frankly, this old guy who retired. Okay. And right then I realized, oh my God, we all make mistakes like that. And that's what sort of turned that around for me. Very good. So with the sale of the business, you had a little bit of a transition because in the early days after the sale of the business and you sold the business to an employee, this was kind of a prearranged business deal that was in the works for a while. Uh, you had some responsibility uh, through the transition, but I think that's kind of in the rearview mirror, right? Yeah. So you've you've transitioned, and Maureen has transitioned to this retirement lifestyle. How has that adjustment been from a hard-working, self-employed, entrepreneurial guy to being retired? Uh, we have yet to establish a rhythm. <laughs> How's that? I mean, it's been. Two years, but I've yet to get like a rhythm together yet. It's mm. almost two years, but it'll come. And I'm not panicked about it. And by the rhythm, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, get up at five o'clock in the morning, go to the gym, go to work, get done, come back, do some more work at the house that's related to other things mm. or, 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 you know, do some recreational things. But I was fairly organized in that format. So now that I'm retired without that oh, yeah, you know, i got to go do this, and I should be at the office at 7 or whatever. You know, that's gone, but um, in retirement so far, because of the sale of properties and because of the sale of the business and because of the transactions, I've yet to quite build that rhythm, but... 
I'm not panicked in any way about it. So would you say you're still, after two years in kind of a transition mode and haven't gotten into the new normal of what retirement will look like because of absolutely responsibilities yeah. to the old firm, moving, property transfers, all of that stuff? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Have there been any surprises, things that you wouldn't have anticipated about being retired versus being a working guy? Uh, yeah, I did not anticipate the amount of travel. I mean, we planned on traveling when we retired, but I didn't anticipate the the volume of travel that we've had without being necessarily like what you would call recreational travel. Like, I'm not going out to Alaska on a cruise. I'm going like five times to see my son in San Diego for one reason or the other and, and, and my daughter-in-law and now our new grandchild. Or I'm going to Colorado to see my other son. Or it's it's these kinds of things which you didn't anticipate. But it's it's all great. But didn't anticipate that. That's the only thing that's really weird. Very good. Now you mentioned, and I think I mentioned at the beginning of the recording, is that you lived in Connecticut a very long time, raised your family here, built the business here, were very involved in your community, philanthropically, business wise, and when your kids were young, you coached and all of that stuff. But very soon after selling the business and getting to the very edge of entering into retirement, uh, you decided to buy in the state of Florida and you didn't own there beforehand. And you've moved and you've changed your residency to Florida. Um, can you walk us through why you did that? Because for those of you that are in Connecticut, it is very, very trendy, if you will. It's very popular for people to retire and leave the state of Connecticut. Most rankings show that Connecticut is at the bottom or near the bottom of the list for places to retire. And the demographics in Connecticut show that lots of people are leaving the state of Connecticut and the number one destination is Florida. And you kind of fit the profile. So could you walk us through how you and Maureen decided to move to Florida, to buy in Florida, and to leave a state that I assume you have a fondness for. I like Connecticut a great deal. Um, but the decision to move to Florida involved a lot of little things. First off, we've been going to Florida for years uh, with friends, and we always had a great time. It's a little bit, we're in southern Florida, it's paradise. you know. And you do get a hurricane once in a while, so what? It's just a chance to rebuild or remodel. <laughs> and But the idea of moving to Florida made so much economic sense to me, it was illogical to retire in Connecticut at the time. And I think it still is right now. Um, I can look at our income stream and the tax on it, you know, even though we're retired, um, it's, it's so impractical to be a Connecticut resident um, in this tax environment we have now. There are just too many things that made it painful. You know, every... The the attitude of the entire state, uh, still not even able to establish a budget at this point, That's tells right. you how desperate it is. Mm -hmm. So, um, and originally Maureen and I are from Western New York. Um, we have great numbers of friends here in Western New York. Uh, we still have friends in Florida, and so the 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 move was not a critical issue. We were happy with that. Yeah, it's I use and not to flatter you too much. But I use you as an example a lot when I'm doing media or speaking in front of groups or with clients and prospects because to me, 
the worrying part of Connecticut is in part the economics, but I think it's absolutely uh, Connecticut should be ashamed that a good citizen like you, small business owner who accumulated some wealth, was a good taxpayer, was a good citizen throughout his lifetime, immediately when they retire, seems to be in a hurry to pick up, pack up, and leave the state. That's a problem economically, right? Because we're, we're missing your tax revenue. But it's also a problem for the community, for the society of Connecticut, because we're losing really, really good people that are part of the great fabric of Connecticut. And I worry that if we lose too many people like you, it's not just an economic problem, but it's also a community social problem. And it's you're an example of who we don't want to lose. You're who we want to retain. It is a social problem, and and that's exactly how I kind of look at it. And there was the financial end of it, no question about it. Um, but the social side of it is just as big an issue. If you look at Connecticut, and I'll never forget uh, a couple years ago, uh, one of our brilliant legislators here in Connecticut decided that they should impose a special tax on Connecticut retirees who've left the state because they unfairly took the money with them and aren't getting taxed on it by Connecticut state income tax. Well, I'm also a state retiree. I taught in the evening for almost 30 years uh, at a local college. And all I could think of was, this is the attitude of my legislature. That's right. They don't care about what good I brought to the state or that you know, I tried to be on various charity committees, and uh, and I'm friends with hundreds of them, but that they thought it was important to somehow chase away at me or anyone like me for that little bit of money told me it was time to go, man. Yeah. That's the social issue. No, you're right, and it's that attitude that is problematic. Like, we want to punish people for leaving as opposed to studying why they're leaving and try and have policies in place to retain that talent and money. Uh, but I think it's wrong-headed. I'll, I'll throw out, and I could go on a riff about this for probably hours, <laughs> but I just saw the statistic that since Connecticut imposed the state income tax in 1987 by Governor uh, Weicker, is Connecticut has had the lowest economic growth of any state over that period. So we are a state that has been in decline a long time. We could pick on Governor Malloy, who I am not a fan of, but this has been a long-standing problem in Connecticut. Uh, you mentioned something, and, and I alluded to it also, another area, not to give you a very big head, that I admire you and Maureen is because you have been very giving, very philanthropic, involved in the community. You've donated, I don't know the details, but I think a decent sum of money over the years. But you also donate your time, including a lot of donation of professional services as an architecture so that when various charities have some type of architectural need, you would step in and donate. So where does that come from? Why did you do it? Where does that come from? Is that how you were raised? Um, was it to advance your business? Can you walk us through a little bit about that? Well, I, it really didn't have anything to do with my business or advancing my business. Um, 
I think it's important to be a good citizen. I think it's important to give to your community. And the best way to give is to find a charity that does the good you see as particularly special. Uh, in my case, um, I did charity work for almost any church that asked. Um, I, I did a lot of YMCA stuff, as you are aware, um, and then the, the local food banks and, and, and so on, and community services. And I did that in effect, not because of uh, maybe some special inspiration, but I do remember that as a kid, um, I'm from a very large family. I have six brothers and two sisters. And um, we were by no means wealthy. And I do know that as children, uh, the YMCA played an important part in helping us become good citizens. You know, just basic Christian values, how to be a good person, you know, follow the golden rule even, just simple stuff. And it was that concept that I still support, and my way to support it now is by giving them services or donations, and I'm still a big believer in that. Very nice. You uh, have had financial success, able to sell your business, retire. Uh, so could you tell me and those listening, in your mind, what are a couple, let's say, three keys to what has been successful you for you and your family financially over these many years? Well, I've had a couple of kind of things foremost in my mind over the years as I've uh, kind of worked toward where we are now. Um, I, 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 first off, never spend more than I can earn. Um, I don't like to uh, buy uh, anything, almost, <laughs> anything, um, that I can't pay for out of pocket. Okay. Um, it, it just seems to make sense to me. Did you live a, I'm sorry to interrupt, but did you live a, a no-debt lifestyle or were you just very careful and discriminating about using debt? No, no, I was careful and discriminating. Now, you have to have debt to, to make things work. Um, you know, it's, it's foolish to think that you should buy your first house debt-free because by the time you've saved that money, you've lost any advantage you've had. Fair so point. things like that, of course. But I was careful uh, not to do things that I felt were indulgent. Uh, and it sounds silly, like, for instance, buy a new car. I could certainly afford a new car. Yes. I don't buy new cars. There's no logic in it in my mind. Mm -hmm. A used car does the job perfectly well after someone has used up all that depreciation, depreciation yeah. that was given to the company that made the car. I'm yeah. happy with that. Okay. Uh, you know, things like that. So, classic American, classic American attitude, live beneath your means, be very careful about debt, which is another way of saying have the money available to pay for purchases. And what else would you add has been a money rule or key to your success over time? Well, in my business, the key to my success was to understand we're a service business. Um, I firmly believe that in almost no case, there were maybe two exceptions in my 30 years, uh, your client is never wrong. Okay. Even if they're wrong, they're never wrong. Mm -hmm. um, that as a service organization, when your client needs service, it's the foremost issue. You do your best to serve them as well as you can. 
and you don't worry about the money. The money takes care of itself if you take care of your clients. That philosophy kept me in business. And where did you learn that philosophy? Did you grow up in an entrepreneurial family? You mentioned it was a large family. Is it something you learned in school or was it similar to what you described before that just in the early working years as you observed what was happening around you, different business models and the like that it's just a posture you adopted? Kind of. I I had a couple of really good lessons growing up in business. Dumb as it sounds, one was when I was a paper boy. Okay. Uh, I learned that as a paper boy... Uh, you're the only one who looks out for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a paper drive, and in the drive, the newspaper said, "You know, if you get up to so many customers, you know, we have some gifts for you." And there were things like a, a new bag to carry your papers in. Okay, very cool stuff, you know. <laughs> of course, so instead of charging like eleven bucks for the bag to carry their papers, they're going to give it to you. Gee, that was wonderful. <laughs> It seemed important at seemed 12, important. right? <laughs> yeah. I was, I was 10 at the time, actually. We had a paper route because we passed it between us so I could get one before I was 12. But I'm delivering papers, and I was delivering maybe 80 papers, but I went up to 120 papers after getting new customers. So I get to 120 papers, and suddenly I was making no money. Now, before you were making, and this is a long time ago, but you were making like maybe 30 cents a customer. That's horrible. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a super grind. Six days a week, 30 cents maybe. And that's if you got a tip, which was hard to come by in those days. I delivered in the wrong end of town. Tough to get a tip. Um, so so you look at that and you think, oh, that doesn't make any sense. But now I'm up to 120 customers. I'm literally losing money. So I called <laughs> the newspaper and said to the director of circulation, I said, geez, you know, I've expanded the paper to a hundred, but, but of these new customers, almost eighty percent of them aren't paying me. And he said, boy, he said, you know, he said, Joey he says you got you got to do better on that. You got to, you know, you got. I said, I'm knocking on the doors. Literally every day I go by, I hit them on the way out and on the way back. Yeah. And uh, I said, they're there sometimes. They won't even answer the door. Uh, he said, well, you know, he says we're glad you got up to 120 papers, but he said, you know, you have to do the collecting. I said, well. You're selling 120 papers. How about until I get paid, you cover the cost of these papers? He goes, well, we really can't do that. (laughs) And then I learned who looks out for Joe. Right. That was my first real lesson in who looks out for Joe. So the next week, I fired 40 customers, and the newspaper had a fit. Mm -hmm. And I said, if you're willing to pick up the cost of those customers, I'll put them back on the list, and I'll deliver those papers. Wow. And they said no. And I said, perfect. Mm Mm-hmm. I delivered to 80 customers, and I made the regular amount of money, and I enjoyed it a lot more, and that was my first lesson. That is a great lesson, and there are lots of adults and business owners and even owners and people that run very large businesses that haven't figured out that more is not necessarily better, that it's the bottom line and being smart about it, and you know, I think... You know, I'm Italian and I think, and this is probably in other cultures too, is, you know, there's the joke about, you know, my Uncle Vinny sold suits and he lost money every suit, but, you know, he committed himself to increasing the volume to make it up. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly right. And so you see that an awful lot and 
businesses will work with clients that are not profitable and even expand the relationship with that client that's not profitable, but they do it at their own detriment. So if you pick that up at at 10, 11, 12 with a newspaper route, that's pretty good stuff. I wish we could talk more about that because I had a lot of formative experiences delivering newspapers as a young kid in New York City. And I'm going to show my age now at, say, 46, is that I think it's sad that my kids and other kids don't deliver papers because I think it was one of those awesome ways to learn about business and life and people and the independence that gave. And I always had money in my pocket when I was 12, 14, 15. I was essentially rich. I always had my own money. Exactly. And it's sad that you don't see that. You got to write your own checks, doing your own banking. It was pretty cool. So these stories are great and you built the business. It's tough for younger individuals today because they're in a different world. It's different regulation-wise, tax-wise. You have social media technology. But there are some principles that I think stand the test of time. Any advice you would have for younger entrepreneurs who are just getting started like you did some 30 years ago? Uh, I would say the, the smartest thing to remember is the money you often get as an entrepreneur, especially a young entrepreneur, is not all yours. And by that I mean, when you look at how much you take in, especially a young entrepreneur might forget the other side of what he takes in. So you go out and your dad gives you a lawnmower and you start mowing lawns. And you're happy as heck that your time is getting paid for and you're making money, but you forget that your mower is going to burn out on you. And when it burns out, your dad normally is not going to say, let me just go get you another one. You should have saved money to buy your next mower. Okay. And those are things I think that young entrepreneurs don't understand. So when you get your first paycheck for doing your first job, you can't look at that as your money. It's got to be, some of it might be my money. Some of it, if in a real entrepreneur situation, some of it must be the government's money. Yeah. And that's often forgotten. I've picked up on that myself. Right? Yes. Yeah. And then some of it's the future money to make sure you don't die when things get slow or, you know. Do you have an opinion? Uh, We've kicked this around here at LA Wealth Management because we have folks at different age, uh, you know, different age parts of different generations. So increasingly we've been talking about what's your opinion, if you have any, about millennials? They take a lot of criticism, if you will, in some ways, and I kind of have a contra opinion, but do you look back and fearful about this generation of entrepreneurs that they're not going to be successful like your generation was and the generation before you were? Not at all. Um, One of my sons is a millennial. Okay. And um, if I look at him, I wish I was the businessman he is. Okay. Oh yeah, it's uh, and there are many like him, uh, many of his classmates, and you know you can look at the negative and the one who's, you know, got done with high school and didn't do anything and uh, is maybe just struggling for what am I going to do next or went to college and said oh that didn't really work out and changed four times and still can't find a job. Yeah, there's a lot of that, but there's also 
the real heroes out there who are very young, who see that some of their colleagues not making it is an opportunity for them to do more and make yeah. more. And the competition's not moving. The so competi- if I exactly. get going, I'm going to win and win big. I was, my son got married in Colorado, and he had six of his college classmates there. And wow, I mean, talk about rock stars. Um, it was incredibly impressive to see these people, um, kids who just about turned 30, uh, running projects worth hundreds of millions of dollars. That's awesome. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Good. 30. And these are your millennials. So um, when people tell you these millennials are all slugs, eh, I think that's pretty selfish. That's, that's my experience too. So final question. You mentioned about discipline. You know, new cars, living beneath your means. Uh, we've also talked that you've had success, that you're retiring on a good... Um, you know, with you're in good shape, right? With a real base. So, yeah. so is there anything that you splurge on? I don't splurge regularly on almost anything. Um, I bought a Porsche. That okay. was a splurge, honestly. That is a splurge. It you is know, a beautiful car. It's a beautiful <laughs> car. You know. Um, All right, that counts. But it's fun. You know, yeah. it's something for fun. Awesome. You know. So thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Hopefully the listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, So this Everyday American series with Joe Eddy um, was excellent. I will be back with you in an upcoming episode of Simply Financial sometime soon. In the meantime, please pass this podcast along to friends and family. We'd love the recommendation. You could subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and other platforms for podcasts. You can also find the episode and other information about me and the team at Elliott Wealth Management Services at our website, www.elliotwealth.com. That's two L's and two T's, elliotwealth.com. Thank you. I'll be with you again soon. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of SagePoint Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against a loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. The information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of information provided at those websites. Nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to or your use of third-party technologies. Websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of those websites, you assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the website you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through SagePoint Financial Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management LLC are not affiliated with SagePoint Financial.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.